Hi, Matt. All right. Well, thank you so much for calling today. Wendy J. Fox is the author of four books of fiction. Her novel, If the Ice Had Held, was named a top book by BuzzFeed, High Country News, and Lit Hub Audio. She has been a finalist for the Colorado Book Award twice. A frequent contributor to national publications, she has written for Self, Business Insider, Ms. Magazine, BuzzFeed News, and others. She has also written for literary sites including The Millions, The Rumpus, and Electric Literature. And today we'll be hearing a short story called Tornado Watch from your collection, What If We Were Somewhere Else, correct? That's right. Awesome. Has this been published anywhere before, or is this a, kind of a, a sneak peek at the, the, the publishing? It has been published. So it was published in the magazine Euphony um, originally. And then, yeah, it's one of the it's one of the stories that's part of my linked collection. What if we were somewhere else? That comes out in November of 2021 this year. And uh, the the collection is being published by Santa Fe Writers Press. Is that correct? That's right, the Santa Fe Writers Project. Yeah, um, they've been it, they're a small press that's been around for about 20 years, and they actually published my novel If the Ice Had Held as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I guess you know, before we get to the story itself, uh, would, would you mind giving me a little bit about of your background as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as you mentioned in in my bio, so this is my fourth this is my fourth book of fiction, and for me, it was a little bit of uh, it was a little bit of a longer road, I would say. I did go through kind of a traditional track in that I completed an MFA degree. I finished my MFA in 2001, so it was 13 years before before finishing up that degree, and uh, before my first book of short stories came out in 2014. So, um, you know, that's really just to say for a lot of people, writers in particular, it can be such a slow and isolating business, but really sticking with it can obviously pay off for you. Um, you know, I took a little bit of an untraditional track in that for a long time I worked in technology software marketing. Now I'm a freelancer, but I didn't take the route of go of doing academia, which I think sometimes made um, made getting to full length book book publication a little bit slower because I was less within the world of literature, but also at the same time. You never know, right? It's 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 a challenging business, and you you never know what's going to get picked up and what's not going to get picked up. I think it can be, I think it can be sometimes both extremely disheartening and extremely thrilling to be working as a writer in the contemporary landscape. So highs and lows. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely, yep. And you know, and I will say for myself too, when my when my first book when my first book came out in. 2014, people kept saying to me, you know, aren't you so excited? And of course I was excited. Of course I was thrilled. But I was also extremely relieved because for so long I thought, oh, I'm going to be one of these people who is a writer without a book. Um, you know, I and I, I feel really differently about that now. And I know that some of that is through the lens of having several books. But but the way that I feel about it now is if you're writing, you're a writer. That, that's mm-hmm. the measure of it. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the type of thing that really, I think, kept me going through the period of where I wasn't really publishing a lot and wasn't getting to those full-length publications, was just continuing to engage in the work. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. I would like to talk uh, to you more about both your other books and 
this particular collection maybe after we hear the story. Uh, I think you said in one of your emails that you would be you would be reading the story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to read it. Okay. Well, unless unless you want to, uh, uh, let's go ahead and do the story, and then we'll we'll talk some more about it. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Um, the story is called Tornado Watch, and as I mentioned, it was originally published in Euphony Magazine. It's part of a linked this linked collection, and um, it appears about halfway in between halfway through the book, but you don't, it stands alone. You don't necessarily have to know anything about the other characters who do recur in other stories in order to understand this one. Great. Tornado Watch by Tor- uh, Wendy Fox. In our home, there were sounds. One of the sounds was like a balloon slowly deflating, a sound of almost nothing, of air being displaced. And I'm not sure if we knew it was the canary in the coal mine of our marriage, which we were not paying very much attention to. So we didn't worry about it in particular. We only complained about the unplaceable noise. We checked the fridge and all of the other major appliances. We checked the HVAC system. We poked around outside the house and found nothing, but we kept hearing the slow, gentle whooshing punctuated occasionally by a squeak or the call of a suffocating bird. We are paying on the mortgage, and so I think we have some right to get whatever this is fixed, Jimmy, my husband, and I said to one another. We fiddled with the thermostat, took a flashlight to the crawl space, and we called our insurance company, who kept wanting to know if we were opening a claim, and we kept saying that we weren't sure. We weren't sure what was wrong. We were just trying to understand if we were covered. We didn't know why it was so complicated. We were married to one another, and we were also married to work, and we were married to our ideas, our ridiculous ideas, so caught up in the way laundry was folding or aspirational grocery lists. Most nights, the produce rotted as we hit the booze. If we were drunk enough, we didn't hear anything until finally that balloon must have released the final wheeze all at once, sputtering around like a firecracker through our house. Could you please, I'd written with Sharpie on a bright lime sticky note on a Tuesday before I left for work, the last day Jemmy slept in our bed. Could you please call a plumber, because it might be the plumbing. I didn't know it was the last day then. I didn't know until I came home and his own note was pasted on the countertop. Went to my mom's, it said. It wasn't like him to leave a note. Usually he texted. We had met Jimmy and I just over a decade ago. We were both working in an office, and he was a contract employee. And when his contract ended, he asked me out. It was surprising. We had barely spoken. He was on a different team. We went on two dates, and the balloon filled up so quickly I thought it would pop. It was like a sharp intake of helium sucking the oxygen out of our bodies, like we already loved one another so much we couldn't breathe, and we were only gasping hearts and guts. We were giddy and high and operating on an upper frequency. We married on our fifth date. We made an impulsive drive to Blackhawk, Colorado, a casino town in the upper foothills of the Rockies. We both wore jeans, which was what we'd been wearing which is what we'd been wearing when we decided to get in Jimmy's car and go. Afterward, we rented a room at a hotel and then lay on the bed naked and wondered just exactly what we'd done. 
We decided to sell our respective townhouses and get a place together. We decided we'd really make a go of it. We knew we were being reckless, but we didn't care. The first year of our marriage was, in fact, highly administrative, working backwards through everything we hadn't done, like announcing our nuptials and getting to know one another in the day-to-day. What we couldn't explain to people was how much grace our hasty commitment had given us. I wondered if this was what it was like in arranged marriages. We were already hitched, so we didn't have the luxury of enumerating deal breakers because the deal was already done. In our first year, especially, we had to practice acceptance, constant, continuous acceptance. We thought it was a good foundation or at least I did. And really, for how little we knew when we began, we took a long time to let out that last breath for the balloon to finally deflate. The night of Jimmy's note, our life had changed enough that I wasn't sure I wanted to fight for him, so I didn't call or text or email. I ordered a pizza and cracked a bottle of wine. I was sure he was not actually at his mom's, and I realized that none of this was about the plumbing. On our first date, I'd gone back to his place and would have had sex on top of his messy bed, and he kept saying to me, open your eyes, and I did. He was inside of me, and we kept our gazes locked. I'm not sure if it was worse to sign the separation papers or if it was worse to sign the severance papers at my job. We hide from our marriages inside of work, and we hide from our work inside of marriages. And then when both are gone, it's like those dreams we had in elementary school, naked on the playground. Except naked on the playground would have been better. At least in those dreams, we weren't thinking about sagging breasts or a failing ass or getting foreclosed on. In those dreams, it's only children, cruel to be sure in their moments, but it's not the same cruelty that comes with the full exposure to adulthood. The last day in the office after Dave, our COO, let me go, I went into the supply closet to get a box for my things, and he followed me in. I'd been sweating at my desk while I collected my thoughts, but the closet closet was arctic. Reams of white papers like glaciers, piles of sticky notes like tundra flowers in bloom, a case of AA batteries ready to light up as bright as the aurora borealis, and the foot of an easel sticking out like a narwhal's horn. It's not easy for any of us, Kate, Dave said. I had to fire Michael. It was the worst day of my career. Michael was his stepson. Michael stole our lunches, I said. All of the boxes in the supply closet were either too big or too small. I'm telling you, your kid was the lunch thief. I caught him, and you probably didn't even know. And actually, I hadn't caught him. My coworker Heather had, and Heather had told me. He was? That's not why he was let go. It's just revenue. It's the markets. We can't control the markets, said Dave. I was freezing, and I wondered if I really wanted anything in my desk, and I wondered why Dave thought I cared about the worst day of his career. I had always liked Michael. I had hired him, and I hadn't said anything about the lunches because I figured if that was his definition of rebellious bad behavior, then he was probably doing just fine. It occurred to me that Dave did the firings because Dave was secure. I abandoned the search for the box. I think I'm just going to go home, I said. There's nothing personal in my desk or on my laptop. I can be a reference for you, Dave said, shivering too. No thanks, I said. My job search was going okay. I wasn't working that hard on it. I had a little money from the severance, and I had a little money from the divorce settlement. 
The settlement money I didn't really want, and I hadn't asked for it, but I took it anyway. It was a surprise, and I wanted to be open to surprises, even though the realization that my now ex-husband Jimmy had a large savings account he had hid from me stung. We weren't hurting financially, and I wasn't a big spender anyways, so it was hard to believe his secret account had been anything other than a kind of go bag. After we sold the house, I had a new apartment. I liked my place. It was small and compact, and it was mine. I brought, bought bright fuchsia towels because I could. I hung up my art prints and rearranged my furniture, a mix of Ikea and vintage. Jimmy had always said my furniture was like a college kid's, cheap stuff paired with hand-me-downs from a grandma. He liked things to match. He said we were professionals and we should have a more professional-looking home. I said he was welcome to redecorate any time he felt like it. After the first rush of nestling into my new space and shopping, I neglected the laundry and I ate ice cream for dinner. And I know ice cream for dinner is a single lady divorcee cliche. Well, it's a lot better than making something in the microwave. It was hard to shake the job, and it was hard to shake the divorce. It wasn't that I missed Jimmy or my work so much. It was that I had spent so much time in the swirl of the marriage crumbling and the swirl of the office that had a weird wind in it right in the center where the not where the hot half and the cold half came together. The physical office was just a sweet, badly in need of air balancing. But now that I was at home all the time, I kept thinking about how every day when I'd walk in, I would flash on how tornadoes are made, the convergence of warm and cool air. I knew logically, at least after I looked it up, that a tornado has to be anchored to the ground and tethered to a cloud to really form, to do its damage with wind speed and lightning and hail and gravel flinging everywhere. I knew this was not happening in my office, but still, People get so casual, they get comfortable, and they start overlooking danger. They think it won't happen to them. My friends asked me if I knew Jimmy was going to file, and I said, oh, yeah, it was a long time coming. He just beat me to it. But I had no idea. And actually, he didn't just file. He had me served. After the note on the kitchen counter, it took only three days for for the courier to show. I knew something was up, as in the note at my mom's, but I didn't expect that. We'd always been nicer than that. So just like a tornado out of nowhere, I'm the cloud and he's the dirt. I overlooked the danger too. Once it's going, watch out. I think I thought I was on the outside or that I didn't understand what was forming. I thought we were tracking down a wheezing balloon, but really I was in the middle of a storm and hadn't noticed the eye, they call it, It's characterized by light winds and clear skies. The whooshing sound we had heard, those winds, an exhale of atmospheric gas, it seemed like Jimmy must have known all along. Open your eyes, he had said. Also, with the ice cream, it's the fancy flavors that get popular, like cookie dough or pints referencing jam bands. I like regular vanilla or chocolate. Strawberry's all right. I can handle a chunk of something mixed in on occasion if I'm feeling adventurous, but generally I like my ice cream simple. I like my ice cream to reflect my vision for my life. If there was ever a tornado flavor, I wouldn't even try it. After I was let go, 
I didn't see anyone from the office on purpose. Not that anyone tried to see me. I had survived the first round of layoffs, the fiscally necessary ones, like when Dave fired his stepson slash lunch thief, Michael, and I had thought I was okay after that. Revenues recovered a little, and it seemed pretty smooth. I knew a couple of people from my team were writing out their unemployment, and I thought I might be able to hire them back. Ideas of rebuilding felt good. When Dave gave me the notice, it was just like getting served the divorce papers, breezy, transparent skies collapsing into gray. Paper seemed so, seemed so harmless. Then when you lick an envelope, it cuts your tongue. I wondered if no one from the office contacted me because I had been on edge for a while. Maybe they had come to dislike me. They all knew my marriage was falling apart. Maybe they knew before I did. And also, like a lot of people, when their marriage is falling apart, I was drinking way too much, way too consistently. There was a feeling I had, and I'm sure Jimmy had it too, of waking up in the morning, sort of sliding one eye open just as the light hit, simultaneously praying there was coffee in the house, but also hooch from when we got up for when we got off work. It's not a feeling we would have wanted other people to understand planning around cocktails, the same way some people plan their living room around their TVs. At the office, I drank a lot of water, a gallon a day. I measured it in a quart jar, filled and consumed four times. It'll change your life, I, will say, I would say to people in our cubicles. What I really meant was it was the best type, it was that perpetual hydration was the best bet against a hangover and maybe the only thing that was keeping me even remotely tethered to professional success. It kept the day-old alcohol smell off. It gave me something to reach for through the slog of conference calls and meetings, and it was a sense of accomplishment when I'd hit that 128th ounce, like I'd done at least one good thing. Even though I didn't really want to look for a new job, I was looking anyway. The ice cream had mostly replaced the alcohol, and I kept up with the water drinking. I took a sip of ice water. I took a spoon of vanilla. I rolled a cube around in my mouth. I took a spoon of pistachio. Pistachio is another basic flavor, overlooked, really, in the ice cream cannon. My teeth were cold. I emailed a recruiter. I updated my profile on LinkedIn. I took a sip of water, took a spoonful. Jimmy and I, we had barely spoken. The early years of our marriage, if nothing else, had taught me that I couldn't change his mind once if it was made up. And they had also taught me that I didn't care to try, and not just with my husband. I think if my heart had turned into what – if my heart had turned – in what seemed such a sudden way, he would have accepted it too. Went to my mom's. Maybe he had for a night. In my old office with the unpredictable temperatures, it was the cold that seemed to frustrate people the most. When it was hot, we all moaned and fanned ourselves, and the women cracked jokes about being of a certain age. And the women cracked jokes about being of a certain age and never to ask if a room was too hot, but the cold made people angry, bitter. Now I felt a kind of attentiveness. I had read online about humans being highly adaptive to chilly temperatures, and I had heard a story on the radio about a man who ran marathon distances in very cold places with not much gear. The story had opened with him crossing a Colorado mountain pass in a car in disrepair and having to blast cold air to keep the windows from fogging up. 
how in this moment he changed his mind to believe temperature was yet another construct, how there was no other way to get through it. When I opened my living room window, the November air came in gently, more cool than cold, but still refreshing. In the kitchen, I opened another window, put the ice cream back in the freezer, and took a handful of ice for my water. I wondered what my ex-coworkers would think of me now or what my ex-husband would think. I wondered what they had thought of me then. I read somewhere that people who chew ice are sexually frustrated. I tried not to chew ice because I had also read that it was very bad for your teeth. I read somewhere about people going on ice cream diets and ice cream cleanses. This seemed ridiculous, but I was neither experiencing the massive stomach pains or weight gain or loss that others had reported on the Internet. I read somewhere that people who have lost a job should keep up a daily routine. I read somewhere that people who get divorced should try new hobbies. I read somewhere that people who have a high tolerance for cold simply perceive temperature differently, resetting their expectations of what comfort either is through training or necessity. I didn't have a philosophy. I just liked the way the ice cream and the ice water felt going down, how I could feel a cool slide all the way to my stomach. I liked the edge on the late autumn air. The trick I realized to avoiding disruptions like tornadoes or hydrogen fires was to keep it consistent and not allow the possibility of convergence. When Jimmy did finally reach out to me, it was another note. He put it in the mail. I was sure I had never seen him post anything, so the short letter felt like it had weight coming from him. He'd had to write it, fold it, address it, stamp it. I read the single page three times. Mostly what it said was that he was sorry, but he didn't say for what, and he didn't say why. We had given it quite a go, I thought, as I tacked the letter to my fridge. We had tried. I refused to believe a decade together was a failure. He did not offer an opinion, just the sorry in his sign-off, inked in his messy hand. It was December by then, and the winter was bearing down. I opened a window to feel the bite of the cold as I read the letter for the first fourth time. The ink was different, but I saw, went to my mom's. The room felt out of oxygen. Open your eyes. I closed the window. Could you please call a plumber? I poured a glass of water and dropped some cubes in. Melissa, Michael, Tabitha, Mariette, Brian, Julie, Christian, Laird, Jorge, Dwayne, Deshaun, Sabine, Sabina, Trung, Roger, and Summer, the group I had worked with from the office. We'd been let go separately, but I felt like I had the memory of riding the elevator down to the ground floor with them, the 16 of us making the car groan. My water glass was purple, not a tornado color at all. Worst day of my career, Dave, the COO, had said. He must have left two by now, though he probably got a payout, and I understood I could be happy for him. I could be happy for anyone, even Jemmy, even myself, given the right circumstances. The ice water was condensing against the warmth of my hand, and Jemmy's note fluttered against the refrigerator door. 
Maybe the final wisps of the air balloon were trapped between a fold of latex, air that had become even smaller as it froze. Maybe with the right application of pressure or temperature, we could puff it up once more and do it without having to go on tornado watch. Maybe if we were smart and careful, it could expand again. All right. That was Tornado Watch by Wendy J. Fox. Wendy, thank you so much for reading the story and sharing it with us. Yeah, my pleasure. So let me ask you, this is about the, the character's name is Kate, uh, and she is one of the, the many characters uh, that are in this collection that uh, work in an office place. Um, and she seems to be having a hard time of it. She both loses her job and gets divorced, and she seems to be kind of uh, taken by surprise on both fronts. And she, she seems to be weathering it relatively well, but uh, very dramatic changes. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's pretty – there's some consistency with that in a lot of the characters um, throughout the collection, this sort of idea of how, you know, oftentimes oftentimes – in the moment with something that feels, you know, can feel pretty negative, like a job loss or a partner who wants to break up with you. Um, people often say, you know, that they were blindsided and, they, and that they didn't see it coming. But then oftentimes with a little bit of hindsight, we can see that, in fact, many signs were there. And so, you know, what I'm kind of interested in exploring is, you know, where people are at in the moment and then how things change, even sometimes in small perceptible ways um, over amounts of time. Even if that changes, like, for example, in Kate, she starts to just care a lot less about it, right? It doesn't matter as much to her as the story goes on, even though when she initially gets served with papers and initially gets served with a pink slip, you know, it's, 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 somewhat, it's somewhat devastating and she's caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Well, and she uh, and you said you know hindsight is uh, sometimes beneficial, and we have this paragraph here where uh, at the top of uh, well, I guess your page number is different than mine, but anyway, the point is that uh, it says that you know she everybody else knew that her marriage was falling apart, but she didn't seem to know, uh, and uh, and she was drinking way too much, and so it sounds like she was kind of in in the she was in the storm as you know uh, mentioned, and, and then that things cleared up, and she was able to see what she was going through, and uh, only once she went through it did she, was she able to see how it was relatively foreseeable, uh, or at least everybody else saw it. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think, and you know, and there's kind of a parallel in there, too, with a work setting. Um, I think a lot of people have had the experience of, you know, someone someone gets let go at work and you kind of water cooler gossip and think like, oh, yeah, I'm not really that surprised. But the person themselves is often surprised, right, because we're just, we're, we're, you know, to generalize, we're just not good um, at seeing ourselves in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And and she still seems to be kind of blindsided by the fact that she gets fired, despite the fact that some other people had already been let go, and she thought maybe she was secure. And Dave says that you know we're at the essentially at the market at the, the mercy of the markets, and we can't control the the markets, and uh, wish we could. Um, and uh, so. I don't know. She's, it seems like she's uh, she's been buffeted by this by both you know storms on the domestic and the professional front. And uh, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about was all this. There's a one of the the things that just jumps out to, to me at the story, and I wanted to ask you about it. And I you know I, I assume it was intentional. Was there's a lot of meteorological 
imagery uh, at, that, that appears in the story, both in, in terms of the tornado and the temperatures, and towards the end, she seems to be uh, purposely seeking out colder temperatures with the ice cream, the ice water, opening the window for the ice wind to blow in. And I, I was wondering if that's a, a sort of a coping me- mechanism on her part to try to not only achieve stability but to uh, to escape any potential tornadoes uh, mixture of uh, cold and hot uh, temperatures that would, might cause a tornado in the future. If that was just something she was doing to uh, to try to you know give herself some shelter from the storm. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And I I, I kind of want to take that I want to take that in two parts. Um, and the first part, you know, when you mentioned she she thinks she thinks she's safe in terms of layoffs. Um, I don't know if you've ever been had the experience of of working in an organization that is going through rounds of layoffs. Um, I hope that no one ever has to experience that because it's one of the most moralizing things that you can ever have in a work setting. So a lot of times people sort of, it's this sort of idea of, oh, the second round happened. Well, there can't be a third. Oh, the third round happened. Well, of course, there can't be a fourth. And so you oftentimes sort of think, like, it has to end, and I didn't I didn't get let go, um, so mm-hmm. I am therefore safe. And so, but it's, it's a false sense of security, which is what's happening to Kate. But then that is linked to this idea of the, of the meteorological, meteorological, because, you know, in, in some ways, she's, she's scared of this idea of the tornado and the danger and how a tornado really, it, it, a tornado, you know, it happens so fast, right? Like that's why they're so devastating to people is that you don't have a lot of warning. But at the same time, there are these, there are these, uh, weather forces that, you know, build up over time in order to cause it. And so a lot of what she's doing when, when she's opening the windows or drinking the ice water is, is trying to get, you know, a, a better sense of connection and being more intentional about all right, well, I'm going I'm to interact with something that has to do with temperature or how it affects my body that is something that I can control rather than the than the what feels like the seeming randomness of a tornado. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the fact that uh, in, in the story she kind of personifies herself as being the wind and up high and she and her husband or ex-husband Jimmy is the dirt and so right. uh, that seems that seems like a a, uh, uh, a an arrangement that she chose and inter- willingly entered into albeit with, perhaps without a, a whole lot of forethought but uh, so it seems like she brought the inadvertently brought, brought the tornado on herself yeah totally totally exactly because you know again I, I, you don't you don't know that in the beginning that Oh, in fact, this is in some ways a dangerous combination. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, gosh, what about this, this Jimmy guy, man? Like, uh, there's no court. I mean, he 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 uh, he leaves like one note, went to my mom's, and then the next next thing she knows, she's getting served with divorce papers, which presumably he didn't write. So his, he had his lawyer write him. And then uh, after the after the divorce is final. He sends her a one-page letter after ten years of marriage. Uh, I, I take it he's not one for the—he's not a man of letters. He's not. Yeah, he's not a particularly—he's not a particularly sentimental, sentimental person. Um, yeah, and you know, it's—it's it, it's interesting because I mean, just in in the same way that in the same way that a lot of you know origin stories for relationships 
um, have variants and have difference. A lot of dissolution stories have a lot of variants in them as well. I mean, I think we oftentimes think of separations as, as being extreme, you know, dramatic or protracted. Um, and that absolutely happens, but it doesn't always happen in that way. But that's also part of what's, like, so destabilizing for Kate in this situation where, you know, she's sort of, like, fired without much explanation other than the market. And then, you know, and then being Jimmy is done with her sort of, like, without explanation. Though I think that part of um, what I'm trying to get across in some of the subtext of the story is, um, that, in fact, this is not out of the blue. She just wasn't paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that absolutely does come across because uh, she seems to be blindsided, but uh, everybody else around her does, is, is not by either uh, by her divorce, by her marriage falling apart. And also there's just the, there's the unhealthy behavior of her and Jimmy apparently yep. drinking it up. Uh, after work every day, which I think during 2020 that was that became uh, de rigueur. But uh, prior to the pandemic, I don't think that was you know that was per commonly perceived as a healthy behavior. No, totally. Well, and and the thing is about that is you know that it's it, whether whether it's you know drinking or something else like it's an avoidance tactic, right? Like they're engaging in this in order to not really truly have a conversation with one another. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when the marriage is over, she begins to give up the alcohol and replaces it mm -hmm. with which seems like a, it seems like a probably a better path for, for her, at least in terms of uh, her day-to-day -day health. Right, right, right. Yep. And, and the part, you know, and the ice cream thing is also just about trying to have, like, the, you know, get the sense of, like, the connection with the cold. Um, mm -hmm. but also, but also how in, you know, in the way that sometimes in, when, when we, uh, when we are isolated, which is, I think, also, you know, related to the pandemic, I, this may ring true to some people, even though I did not write this story, um, in 2020, but, um, sometimes when we're isolated, uh, behavior that, you know, seems like totally fine when you're kind of by yourself in your apartment or your house or your wherever, when it, um, it, when it's exteriorized, right, um, it may seem a little unusual, right? So, like, Kate doesn't, Kate doesn't feel like a weirdo in her own home. But when we read about her on the page, you kind of think, like, eh, do you need to talk to someone? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, she's an adult. She can make her own decisions. Doesn't mean that she's going to make she's going to make good decisions. And I mean, the, you know, the the marriage sounds like it was exciting at first, but then towards the end, it uh, uh, obviously, I, I guess she was using the alcohol as a as a day to day coping mechanism. Yeah, a, a coping, and and also work as a coping mechanism, which I think is you know, which I think is also a pretty a pretty common thing, um, you know, and not to. It's very hard not to talk about 2020 because so many things seem contextualized within the experiences of lockdown because it's, it was, you know, so new, so new for people and we we're all going through it together. But I think, you know, that really, that's another thing that showed how much, um, the real pressure that there can be on romantic relationships and how just having that ex escape of going, going to work every day does release some of that pressure, right? Because you don't, because you're not in the same space all day long, constantly hearing people talk on the phone or whatever, you know, depending on what your work situation is. 
Um, and so for her, it's, you know, it's kind of the one-two sucker punch of losing both at the same time. So, you know, the uh, work, work is a way out of the marriage, but then also the marriage is a way to um, to deal with the pressure of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes across. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about was uh, towards the end when she starts talking about uh, drinking a gallon of water every day, and uh, she's, you know, she's measuring it in a quart jar, and then she gets, you know, she looks forward to getting the 120, 128 ounces. And there was a, to me, there was a faint hint of a T.S. Eliot, uh, you know, measuring out uh, the day in coffee spoons. And I was wondering if that was an, an intentional illusion or is that just something uh, I, I read into it? Oh, no, that's not an intentional illusion, but I love that you saw that. <laughs> okay. Um Okay, well, I, what, what I want to ask you now, I want to ask you about the story uh, in the context of the of the book. Uh, you said you you know your first book of stories came out in 2014, and you've written four novels. And this is is this a this is a collection of linked stories. Is, is this the first time you've done a collection of linked stories? It is the first time I've done a collection of of linked stories. So for me, my my first book um, is called The Seven Stages of Anger and Other Stories. It's really similar to I think I'll. Uh, Certainly not everyone's, but I think a lot of people have a first book that is a collection of stories that some of them are old and some of them are new, and they may not have anything to do with one another because they were written over a period of time. So in that first book of stories, I mean, they span from, they span, there's a story that I wrote while I was in graduate school, um, in there, and then there's also, and then there's also stuff that I had written, you know, as um, as early as two years before the book came out. So, um, and so there's like there's there are things that are thematically similar between those stories because I think as writers we always have our interests. I mean, I write a lot about I write I write a lot about work and relationships, um, but you know, this. It, and then, you know, two novels in between. Um, this is different in that I intentionally wrote this as a collection of short stories that has the same characters that, that what, follow them through. And what was the, uh, why did you, what, what made you want to do that? The reason that I wanted to do that is, um, well, one, I like writing stories. And, but the real reason is after having the experience of having, you know, my first collection where um, sometimes it didn't feel to me that it totally, like, cohered as a book, right? Because, um, because the, because, because there's so, because there's so much difference between each of those stories, which is another way to approach a book of short stories, for sure. Um, because there's so much difference between them, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to, I wanted to work on something that, again, felt very intentional as a short story writer, as opposed to like, oh, here, here's collected stuff that, you know, has happened over a period of time. And then also the other, the, one of the reasons is because a lot of my work is very character driven. And so being able to spend more time with those characters as they reoccur and reappear in individual short stories was very compelling to me. Hmm, okay. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of famous short story collections out there that are, 
you know, not only thematically linked, but linked by characters and time and place. Uh, you know, yes. uh, what Anderson automatically comes to mind, of course. And uh, so, is, and also Rashomon uh, comes to mind. And so you've written in both the short story format and the novel format. What do you think, what do you prefer about each? And, uh, you know, is there a, is there a freedom to doing short stories that you, that you like, or what is it that uh, makes you write short stories and what is it that makes you write novels? Good question. Um, I mean, I think, so personally, I think that they're equally as hard. Um, I think that some of it has to do, I think that some of it maybe has to do with an individual writer's headspace of where they're at. Um, when I started when I started working on these stories, I was really just coming off of doing some pretty detailed revisions of my novel, If the Ice Had Held, that came out in, I guess it's 2019. Um, and I think that for me as a writer, it's always very useful to have a project that I'm actively engaged in, um, even if I've just finished something else, because, you know, writing is slow and it's takes time and it's super hard and um it's just it's mentally good for me to always always have something that I'm working through to varying degrees of success and so I I I turned towards stories after finishing those revisions because I wanted something that felt a little bit more discreet as in oh you can get it finished I'm using air quotes because it feels like nothing's ever really finished you can get it finished in 12 to 20 pages instead of 300 but but also you know I like the scope of novels going back to that thing of being able to sit with the characters for some time and get to know them better that is compelling so doing the linked collection really felt like for the headspace that I was in both wanting to engage more deeply with characters and but have the opportunity to get to a reasonable stopping place on something after 12 or 20 pages um, the combination of those two things was was great for where I was at in terms of my own process. Okay. How long did it take you to write uh, What If We Were Somewhere Else? Um, a while. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think here. I mean, I think... You know, I think I, I probably really spent close to four years on it, three to four years on it. Okay. And uh, I assume you're very excited about it coming out. I'm super excited. Um, you know, it's uh, publishing has been – publishing can be a challenging industry. Um, it's certainly not helped by 2020. So I'm really excited to see what, you know, the book landscape is going to look like for 2021. Um and I think, you know, what the most exciting thing for me is that it, having a having a new book coming out, it always gives you it gives you a chance to really sort of engage with other writers, whether you're doing an in person tour or a virtual tour. But it's just another reason to to um, have another touch point with the community. Okay, I want to ask you, and I, I, I wanted to ask you about Kate. Uh, specifically, well, actually, I guess what I want to ask about was kind of all of your characters. So you write about yeah. these characters, 
And do you have do you have do you ever you know like play favorites or did you find that in writing about one character maybe you didn't like him as much and you didn't want to and but you still like how do you you know do you ever dislike any of your characters and if and does that make if so does that make the writing about them uh, more difficult? And not not to not to suggest that Kate is an unlikable character. I didn't mean to. If I implied as much, I didn't mean to. Um, I was just curious as to whether or not uh, you know if you have feelings about your own characters and how that uh, you know how that affects your writing about them. Hmm. I don't think that I I don't think that I ever dislike any of my characters. I sometimes uh dislike their behavior. <laughs> yeah. Um You know, some some writers some writers have this experience of, you know, things like they're interacting with their characters in their dreams or they feel like they hear their character's voice in their head. I don't experience that so much in like a very um a super present way that that they always that they feel alive to me when I'm not with them on the page. I hope that they feel alive on the page, but it's really much more it's it, it's well it's it's much less about whether I like them or not, but more can I communicate can I communicate this person's motivation even if I personally don't think that that motivation is the best way to be. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and actually, and I, and I, you know, I, I didn't, I really, truly did not mean to suggest that Kate was unlikable. In fact, I was kind of, I, I was admiring her uh, and her fortitude in handling both the divorce and layoff because those are some very tumultuous events for somebody to have happen in their life uh, more or less simultaneously. And, you know, I, uh, you, you see, people, sometimes when people go through divorce, they act absolutely atrociously. They behave sure. horribly. Uh, and she does not really do that. And she, I, I would argue that she has every right to be angry with Jimmy for just disappearing. Although everybody, you know, every marriage that falls apart does so differently. But uh, she does a good job of. I mean, some people would just go off the rails at that kind of behavior and uh, and being destabilized like she is. And so I think she does a, a very good job of taking it in stride, uh, both the, the layoff and the divorce, uh, in a way that, you know, a lot of people would do well to aspire to. Yeah, and, you know, and the unlikable character thing is is – the unlikable character thing is – is a challenging one. I've run into that feedback with some of my characters, in particular in my book, The Pull of It, that came out in 2016. It's a novel, but also some in the novel, If the Ice Had Held. It's challenging because likability is largely predicated on people's own impressions. And, you know, sometimes the pushback that I have is like, is everyone in your life likable? How do you define that? And 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 like even and is that even your job to define yeah. it? Right? You know, people are going to people are going to there are going to be some things that we think are objectively as much as there is any objectivity objectively makes people unlikable like being super rude um is not a glorious trait to have, but so much of the rest of it is totally subjective and I just I just think that that can be such an interesting conundrum, this idea of likability um, 
And sometimes the expectation of, you know, that female characters will be likable because that's an expectation that is, is carried through from, carried through from, you know, everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult issue to, to talk about uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, is, is, was, is Kate well liked in the office places? Do, do, do her coworkers like her? I think that Kate is liked in the office place in the way that you like people in in your office, which is essentially to tolerate them, <laughs> right? And 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 I don't and I don't mean that I don't mean that negatively. I just mean that offices, you know, offices are so weird because I believe in in part because you have a group of people who quite frequently. You know, they would not be matches in terms of friendship, values. Would you hang out with these people just as friends? You know, but you're put, you're put together by, like, a hiring coincidence because something on your resume or your skill set um, gives you something in common with these other people who you might never encounter or care to encounter, but yet you spend – at least eight hours with them daily, and you have to figure out a way to get along in order to work together. So, you know, I, I think just being able to tolerate people is actually um, is a good goal to have. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's not like Dave. I mean, Dave is probably – it doesn't come off as unlikable, but he does, he does kind of a jerk – I mean, it's, I don't know if I would call it a jerk move, but he seems to pursue uh, Kate into the icy closet – so that he can somehow, I guess he wants, like, forgiveness of some kind. Like, he tells her, it's not easy for any of us, Kate, and I had to fire my own I had to fire my own stepson. Well, like, I mean, I don't know if that's his attempt to empathize with her or what he's trying to accomplish there, because I don't think it's a particularly, I don't, you know, it, it doesn't bring any comfort to Kate, I don't think, but he seems to, maybe he's trying to, I mean, he, I think he's trying to empathize with her, but instead he's making it about him. Yeah, and and that's the thing too that I think that I think happens is that because you know, like in other stories, Dave is a, he's he's a super nice guy. He's a super nice guy. He's a little tone deaf, but he's a super nice guy. But you know, but it it kind of puts this extra pressure on you. Sometimes don't know people in those work settings like really personally, so. Mm-hmm. While someone else might be extremely appreciative of, oh, thanks for offering to reference for me. Like, thanks for helping me look for a boss. Kate is like, leave me alone. And he doesn't know that because, you know, because how, how would you? How would you? Because we don't know, we don't know people in the office in this really intimate way, even though sometimes we're thrown together in intimate situations, like seeing someone pack up their desk after they lose their job. And realizing that's going to have real repercussions in their life. And so you're caught in this, you're caught experiencing this really emotional moment with someone with whom you only have a surface relationship. Yeah. And it's awkward. Yeah. But, but you know, you you can't, this could be 2021 and after what we just went through and the way that people just don't go to the offices anymore, really, uh, or by and large. It really makes you wonder: Are we going to have those offices in the future? Is that going to be the you know the the box of, uh, of the, that are cubicles of uh, the people that don't don't, know necessarily, don't necessarily get along? 
is that going to be something that's in the future? I mean, because it's a obviously good fodder for uh, you know uh, collision and drama and uh, uh, writing, but mm-hmm. you know, we have you know you have to wonder if we're ever going to go back to that. Right, right. And whether we go back to in person or not, I believe that office politics will always exist. Um, I don't think they can be eradicated so simply as not that you were suggesting this, but just not having the in-person piece of it. But it does it does raise some questions about how, you know, just how as a society, how that's going to change, you know, change the texture, um, change the te- texture of our work lives, and it also, you know, change the changes the texture of relationships. But one of the things that I think a lot about in terms of um, in terms of office space and and, and relationships at large is that while it can absolutely be very compelling to see people face to face and a lot of office environments like that for a lot of different reasons, I also think that it's completely possible to make meaningful connections through other mediums that don't involve sitting on a cubicle listening to someone who you maybe don't like very much and you like them even less when you have to smell their lunch every day. And so, <laughs> right? And so, so is there a way that, um, is there, is there, I don't know, I just, I've been thinking a lot of, you know, how do we make sure that we maintain meaningful connections, but, um, but also don't just def- default back to like, oh, well, this is the, you know, quote unquote, back to normal. This is the way that things get done. Is there a way to sort of like rethink this to be like, what, what, what is the meaning and why are we doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and I don't have the answer to any of those questions. It's just stuff I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I don't think you're alone in that. Uh, I have a day job and I have an office that I go to because I, I can't, I just, I, I cannot work from home because I just can't focus and concentrate like I can at the right. office. Right. Right. So I, yeah. I don't know what, it's, yeah. That's, it's, know. And it's different for everyone. And you know what? I'll, I'll tell you, I left, I left, um, I left a corporate job that I had worked at for, uh, seven years, um, in November of 2019. So it was right before, um, right before, you know, kind of pandemic went on lockdown. And, you know, and I, I was working in a, an executive role as a marketer. And I just had this realization, you know, I had been working to transition to being a freelancer for quite some time. But I realized that um, so much of the so much of the struggle that I was having at work is I just didn't like going to the office. I just <laughs> didn't like being there. Um, for a lot of, for a, and, and I didn't even have a long commute. Like I walked there. So, um, so I didn't have a lot to complain about, but it was just something about the way that I felt like it constrained my days, uh, was just, was just really, it had become really challenging for me. And so when the pandemic hit and people started working from home, I thought, oh, this will be so glorious. People will, get to like operate within their natural schedules. So if they want to start at five in the morning, start at five in the morning. But that's kind of not really what happened is because I think that a lot of workplaces are trying to apply the framework of in-person work to people's kitchen tables, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not taking the opportunity to really like rethink what flexibility means. Yeah. It's a crazy time and I don't know, I don't know what, if, if there's a 
as you mentioned, I don't think it's ever going to be normal that we get back to. And if we want to get back to it, I mean, it's, it's uh, everything's up in the air, it seems like. Totally, totally. Well, okay, so your your website is windyjfox.com. And yes. where and now remind the listeners when the book is coming out and where they can get it uh, and where where they can pick up a copy. Yeah, um, so the book comes out November 1st of this year, 2021, available wherever books are sold. Of course, I recommend buying directly from your favorite independent bookstore. And um, if you don't have a favorite independent bookstore, Bookshop is always a great alternative. That's bookshop.org. But, of course, available through all the other channels like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, you can – it's up for pre-order – right about now so it is available for pre-order all right wendy i want to thank you so much for being on the show i really enjoyed your story i enjoyed talking to you about it uh and uh it's been a pleasure having you on thank you so much